It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk, where I know I always say my guests are special, but this guest and I have a history together. We were young lawyers, and one day I was in court. I had opened my own law practice. I think I was practicing law on my own for about two years. And I went to the city of Atlanta traffic court, and there was a young lawyer there, and I watched her, and I was like, OMG, although I don't think we said OMG back then, but you get the thing. And I was like, this woman is phenomenal. And the lawyer I was sharing space with, I said to him, I said, there is this young lawyer, and she's just got it. And I reached out to you, and the person I reached out to is Sherry Boston, who's here with me. Hi, Sherry. Welcome. Hi, BJ. And the next thing I know, we started talking, and I said, hey, let's practice law together. And you left your law firm, and uh, Bernstein and bought. Well, we didn't call it. It was the Bernstein. It was the firm. Bernstein firm. It was the Bernstein firm because I was older <laughs> <laughs> and wiser oh, and way more experienced. That's nice to say. But we. Um, that's the point where we had a law firm where we eventually had a total of five women lawyers working together and um, creating something very different in law scene in Atlanta of, of women owning their own practice and. The next thing I know, Sherry tells me she's going to run for office, and she became a prosecutor. And that's part of why she's here today, because she is the district attorney of DeKalb County, um, which is one of the largest metropolitan counties in Atlanta. And not only is she just a prosecutor, but she is bringing to the table um the national conversation that's happening in justice and justice reform in the prosecution world. And so as much as I want to have tea and talk about our good old days and uh, how we like to dance to outcast, <laughs> maybe, that's, that, maybe that's an outtake later. <laughs> um, I do want to talk about your work as a prosecutor and, you know, why the transition first from criminal defense to prosecution for you? Because that's not usually the order some it goes. It's not. It was, in a lot of ways, to most people, really backwards. But um, I think the way it worked out for me, it made total and complete sense. Because so much of the work that I got to do when you and I were practicing law together really informed me on what needed to happen overall in our criminal justice system. And I didn't I did not set out to be a prosecutor. It wasn't something that I really thought about as much as there were people in my life that suggested that this might be a space where I not only could effectuate real change, but also that I might enjoy. And um, there were a lot of twists and turns that got me to that point. But I am so grateful that I got the opportunity to first become solicitor, which then propelled me to make 
the really difficult and challenging decision to run for district attorney. And, and solicitor for our listeners in Georgia, um, that is the prosecutorial arm for misdemeanor offenses. So you started off prosecuting misdemeanors and then you made the transition to district attorney, which in Georgia um, prosecutes felony offenses. Um, so first off, let's talk about that time period, just that switch for you, because you were a lot of firsts. You know, here you are. I mean, you weren't the only, you weren't the first female solicitor general, um, but you were also a black solicitor general. Um, and there, that was few and far between at that point. You weren't the first on that either. But it wasn't a space where um, necessarily the governor is calling you to appoint you to that position and say, hey, you know, I, I want you to serve in this way, especially in a state like Georgia. Yeah, that was uh, that has been challenging um, along the way to be a, a woman, and in particular, a woman of color. Um, DeKalb County obviously is a very diverse jurisdiction, and we were way ahead of the bell curve when it came because I followed in the footsteps of Gwen Keys Fleming, who was the first African American woman to serve both as solicitor and as district attorney in DeKalb. But um, and sometimes in DeKalb because. Uh, our government has so many people of color in leadership roles. We forget that when we get outside of DeKalb and even outside of Atlanta, that Georgia represents an entirely different landscape. And then the United States represents an entirely different landscape. Um, and so to be in those spaces and have the opportunity to be that voice um, here locally and nationally where uh, people don't look like me. Um, that has been um, a blessing, I think, for me to make sure that those spaces don't forget that there are are people from other spaces. Because yeah, in Georgia, obviously, well, Georgia has more counties than any other state in the country. I think it's 159, and then they have these judicial blocks. So your fellow district attorneys, there are very few that that look like you or sound like you, or have the life experience that you do when you compare metropolitan Atlanta to um, more rural areas or smaller cities um, in Georgia? Yes. I mean, in fact, when I took my oath of office, I at that time was the only African-American female serving as a DA in the state of Georgia. We now have four um, that have come over that four-year time period. So I've watched it grow but I think my perspective, having been a defense lawyer, having been a municipal judge and a part-time magistrate judge, and then becoming a chief elected prosecutor, I don't think there's anybody in the state of Georgia that has had experience in the criminal justice system on all of those sides in the way that I've had the opportunity to have them. And that really informs how I've led the office. And you know, as you mentioned, that there are only, you know, how few in Georgia, I think it kind of gives some perspective of how you got involved with other women, minority prosecutors around the country who have been making waves of, 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 a, of a whole change in reshaping how prosecution is looked at. And also because your hometown and your parents are still in Baltimore, 
Um, and so you had those roots, and certainly there's a prosecutor there who you share a lot with in terms of vision and policy. So how does that affect Because you really are, I hear what you're saying about the influence local, but you really have pulled on the national trends and brought them into Georgia. How did you do that? And what led you there? Well, I, d- I definitely have. Um, and it, it really is, a, a lot of ways, opportunity and circumstance. I mean, I uh, I remember, obviously, I know you're making reference. Uh, my hometown's Baltimore, and Marilyn Mosby is the local state's attorney in Baltimore who's become one of my closest confidants, sisters, and friends. Um, and and there's a whole wave of us. And so I literally met Marilyn. I was going up an escalator <laughs> at a conference in Arizona right before I was sworn in as DA. And I literally, um, ca- you know, came down and came back up. And I, I, I went up to her. I said, you don't know me, but my name is Sherry Boston and and I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. My parents love you. But, you know, I just got elected to be the new DA in in DeKalb County in Atlanta, Georgia. And her face lit up and uh, she immediately hugged me and said, that's wonderful. What can I do to help you in this journey? And that really started a relationship that I have with her, which ultimately a bunch of us built out over the last four years because less than 1% of elected chief prosecutors in the country are women of color, um, African-American women. And we started to see um, folks pop up, and we just brought them in the circle. And it kind of started with myself in Maryland, uh, Kim Fox, the state's attorney in Chicago, and Aramis Ayala, who's the state's attorney in Orlando. Uh, And the four of us just developed a relationship in a text chain where we supported each other through difficult times because many of us have faced um, unbearable um, scrutiny that is racist and sexist and threats to our families and our children. And we were all mothers. We all are actually mothers of two daughters. Oh, all four of us. Yes. Wow. All four of us have two daughters, um, all relatively around the same age. And so it just clicked and from there, as other women started to get elected, we would say, do y'all have her phone number? Let's pull her into the circle. And we now have, there's about a dozen of us that uh, talk and support each other on a regular basis all over the country. Um, and it has been a support system that I never knew or envisioned that I really needed. But I lean on those ladies every time I have to make a difficult decision. So speaking of this group of of women and, and and minority women realizing that the criminal justice system, and I can say this from my point of view as a criminal defense lawyer, you know, when we worked together about how many clients that our firm had, um, some who be- came to national notoriety and trying to prevent, um, you know, something that would have never happened to a young man who was white, who came from a, quote, good family, where the same conduct if you were black um, and maybe not have um, the luxury of, uh, of, of, of what wealth gives you and finding yourself facing lengthy mandatory minimums um, and, and 
and and no sympathy whatsoever from trying to negotiate with a prosecutor. The same arguments that I would make, you know, they come from a good family. This is a good student. They've done this. And it would just be deaf ears because all they could see was black male fear. Um, how have you and, and the other women that you are taking the road on now working towards changing that experience for defendants um, and their attorneys trying to help them? It is, I think, the fact that all of us have taken that personal route, whether it was us personally experiencing the trauma or growing up in a community where um, you were lucky to get out or you saw your family members or your friends that look like you experiencing the, that. And and BJ, I have to give you props because um, the work that I had the, the opportunity to see and be a part of when you um, worked on Janarlo Wilson really every day, I think about every piece of that. Um, and I think about um, what that meant for the system, what that meant for that one person, watching and understanding that it wasn't just about a case. It's about going to the legislature and advocating to reform and change the laws so that nobody else falls in the cracks. I witnessed um, what a unethical prosecutor that's in power can be and the amount of control that they can have over people's lives in a way um, that was enormous. Like when I think about that, I never at that time could understand that watching all the dynamics of the law, the legislature, prosecution, fighting um, would mean. But when I think about what I do now, I take all of those experiences. I think about that power that you can have as a prosecutor if you wield it wrong. I think about how it can't just be about one case. You have to think about all the other people that maybe might not have a lawyer fighting for them in that same way, but deserve that same measure of justice. I think about changing the laws locally and federally and really pushing back the system to recognize all of these issues that are affecting especially communities of color. Um, it's been amazing to see everything kind of come full circle, but that's why I say I think all those experiences prepared me for this challenge. And and you're taking that challenge. I want to go to this, this special program going on right now, this reshaping prosecution that the Vera Institute of Justice has chosen DeKalb County along with um, Ingram County in Michigan and Boulder County in Colorado to change it up, as you say. Um, tell us about that program and how how are we going to see that help into cab and beyond? So we were really excited to be selected as a site. Um, and but at the same time, you know, I'll, I'll admit it's scary because I am opening up the doors to an organization to look into what we've done before, what we're doing now to see, you know, are, are the policies and procedures we're implementing, are they continuing to recognize inequities or are we still contributing to the problem? 
Are we continuing to try to stave mass incarceration? Are we continuing to be a part of the problem? So really, um, they're willing to come in and help us evaluate, look at our data, and ultimately will leave us with a list of recommendations of how we can pursue justice in a way um, that really speaks to issues around inequality and mass incarceration. And I'm excited about it. But at the same time, I'm also prepared for the criticisms that they will give me. Um, and then I got to figure out a way, how do I implement those recommendations to to move the work forward? And and that ties into another thing I think that you, you're doing and that I've read about is that, you know, obviously you have a point of view as an African-American woman, but not all your staff looks like you. There's a lot of different people. We got, you know, you got some good old boy, Southern boy prosecutors. You've got um, Hispanic prosecutors. You've got gay prosecutors, straight prosecutors. You have all these different kinds of people who come to the table with all different ideas and potential bias. And you are doing something to attack potential bias. Share that with our listeners. So one of the things that I decided, even before I got there, it was like on my day one list, my day one bucket list, was I wanted to follow in the footsteps of the former U.S. attorney, Sally Yates, um, under the direction of then um, uh, Attorney General Eric Holder, where they required every attorney in the Department of Justice to have implicit bias training. And I remember being at a meeting and hearing that and sort of taking a note. And I said to myself, that is a goal for me. I want every lawyer in my office to have implicit bias training. And, and what will what does that training look like? And what, what is that supposed to deconstruct? So ultimately, the idea for me was that if we had all of our attorneys understand that they have this very natural bias that already lives in them, no one put it in them, it just kind of lives in who we are. And by the way, um, as uh, uh, Dr. Marks likes to say, he was our trainer, Dr. Bryant Marks, who's phenomenal. He's a professor at Morehouse. Um, and he likes to say, it doesn't make you bad people. You know, <laughs> you're not bad people. We all have it. I have it. You have it. And we're not bad people. It's about recognizing that you have it. And, and what you, and what, what, what bad can come from it. And what bad can come from it. Um, and so my goal was to train every attorney. Uh, and initially it was to train every attorney for four hours. What we ended up doing, which I am so grateful for, is every person in my office, all 230 employees, got eight hours of implicit bias training from top to bottom. So when you call on the phone and they hear your voice and they assume, oh, you're Hispanic and you get spoken to in the wrong way, that's not happening. Or when you walk up to the window at the receptionist's desk and you perhaps are... Um, wearing a head covering, that no one is going to initially make judgments about who you are. Um, and so in keeping with that, we got such great feedback. I mean, the vast majority of the office said it was the best thing that they ever experienced, um, that to have an opportunity to talk about implicit bias um, and seeing themselves and what they felt and heard was so emotional. Um, and so we did it. And then as soon as we were done, I said to Dr. Marks, I said, I, I've got 
five new people. I mean, when you have a staff of 230, your office is constantly changing over. How do I continue this? I can't, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I want to continue the work. And so we have a contract. So every year, uh, and we've already picked our date for this year, I will have another training in the office that will be mandatory for anybody new in our office that came in and anybody that wants to do it again. Um, and I'm committed to keeping that training on my books for as long as I'm district attorney of DeKalb to making sure that we continue that implicit bias training for every person in our office that has contact with victims, defendants, and families within the criminal justice system. Have you seen any interest from either the judiciary or other departments in the criminal justice system to maybe implement the same thing? I mean, I think of sometimes you go to the jail to see a family member and the sheriff's department, you know, whoever that particular officer is, takes a look and makes a, a split decision making it more difficult to see that family member. I mean, you know, these, as you say, these, um, this implicit bias that, that by, and not just color, but your socioeconomic, you know, how you're wearing your clothes, you know, does it fit a stereotype that you're supposedly in a gang or something else when in fact it's just fashion, but because of the context of being in the criminal justice system, it's just assumed that you are a certain way. Um, are you seeing any reverberations or acceptance by what your leadership is doing in your office with other places? I have. And in fact, um, in because we had to divide the trainings, we did had to do like five different um, dates to accommodate our staff. I left spots open and I invited um, different members of the community that I just because I wanted them to see this training and to say, here, you experience it, and then I've given you a connection. Because I will tell you, the hardest part is finding someone that you think you can, that would connect well. And I had um, some court administrators that took me up on it. I had a couple prosecutors from elected prosecutors here in Georgia and out of state. Other states called me and said, we heard about your training. Can I send one of my folks? And I say, of course. Um, so since then, I know Dr. Marks has done some training with uh, the DA down in Macon. David Cook has done some work down there. Um, and there's been some other offices that I know are interested. But I will tell you, I think if any of our judges are listening, um, especially our chief judges who have a little bit of control perhaps over the administration of their benches. Um, and I heard this from Dr. Marks. Um, judges are in charge of their own training for the for the most part. I mean, they they are in charge of creating the systems that they do their training in. And he said it's been the hardest place to kind of crack that shell. So if there are any judges out there listening, I would encourage you tremendously to consider adding this implicit bias training or some level of extensive implicit bias training to what um, the training you're doing because um, judges are making real decisions with people's lives. And it's amazing. I know for me as as the person on the charging side, I know what those biases can do, but we've got to make equal inroads on the other side with our judges who are the ones that are making these final sentencing decisions. And we need to do so without that that bias that is in there and we have it. We've got to recognize it and make sure that we are not sending folks off 
to jail um, based on the bias around what they look like in the courtroom. What are you seeing in this, you know, because every year, you know, we go through different iterations of what justice looks like and what it should change and based on what's happening in the country. And there's a lot of fear. Um, there's a lot of um, division based on who you support um, politically in terms of socioeconomically as we go through difficult times, as we're now about to go through potentially some other difficult times from something that could affect any of us health-wise. Um, where do you see a new space to improve the criminal justice system? You know, you've talked about these things you've done within your office, whatever, but where else, if you if you had the next steps of your agenda to, to improve the criminal justice process? Well, I think the next big step right now, and I think this is facing many DAs across the country, is this idea of how do we keep our communities safe um, while trying to figure out ways um, not to continue with this notion of mass incarceration? Um, and how do we address that in a time where our current lead prosecutor, our current attorney general, is pushing back on prosecutors that are suggesting that we do this in a different way. Um, that's a difficult messaging in our in our community because um, we all know that what we did in the past has not made us safer. Our prisons have gotten more full. But our streets are not safer than they were prior to that. We've just now created a new problem. And so I think for the next few years, we're going to have to continue to figure out a way um, to, to, be, to hold offenders accountable, but not throwing away, locking some up and throwing away the key, because that's not proving safer. It's just creating a system where children are watching their mothers and fathers, you know, from the outside. And we're creating trauma on families that are ripped apart every day. And that cycle of violence and that cycle of trauma is not being broken. And, and I'll reverse it a little bit from is also that just young people in general, in other words, like, for instance, Georgia, you are an adult for criminal purposes at 17 years old, which has trapped so many and that if you add that with mandatory minimums, um, you know, you are spending a, a mistake as a young person colors potentially life in prison or 10, 20, 30 years in prison. And, you know, some of the clients that I have over the years who I reconnect to for various reasons, either I'm representing them again or just some of them, you know, she know, you know, I have my project, like I just get connected to and I start sending books or whatever. And, and we have these amazing conversations. And you're like, this is just not the same 17 year old who made a huge mistake because of of guns and, and how we have guns and we don't educate about how to use guns properly. And we've glorified them. And and, and actually you would if you didn't know that about him, you would have welcomed at your table to, to, to enjoy a meal. Um and so I, is, do you see any space for prosecutors actually wanting to 
maybe just just not be so wedded to a mandatory minimum? I hope so, because I think, I mean, what we know about Georgia when we think about the criminal justice system is that we still lead the way in so many ways that we don't want to be leading. Um, we're only one of three states that is is treating 17-year-olds as adults. Um, we have the highest level of mass supervision or of people that are under correctional control. Probation for like Pro- ever? Probation forever in this, the country, right? Which right. really means in the world in a lot right. of ways, right? And then we— And just for, for our listeners, so sometimes when you have an offense— They'll cut you a break like you're not going to jail or maybe you're getting um, some sort of short supervisory period like a boot camp or something. But then you're on probation for like 20, 30 years. And it's like, wait a minute, I do something at 17 and I'm going to be on probation until I'm 37, I'm 47, I'm 57. It's a, it, it, and we I, also have we also have more mandatory minimums than any other states. And when I go across the country and compare you know, what would this be in your state? People are shocked when they hear some of the mandatory minimums that we have. The combination of those three things, I say to myself, Georgia's not where it it should be. And again, my question to folks is, are we safer? And I think the answer is no. I think we've proven that none of that really works. So we have to figure out a way to funnel all that money that we're spending and supervision and incarceration and all of this back into um, accountability courts, diversion programs. You know, the fact that it costs $90,000 to house a juvenile um, in, a, in a youth detention facility per year. I mean, $90,000, we could send a kid to a private college. I mean, so the thing, the thing I say to myself is, We've got to find a way to do things differently here in Georgia. And I'll say juveniles is the one thing that concerns me. I support raising the age and I support raising the age actually to 21. I know right now the bill that we have is to raise it to 18, which would get us where the rest of the country already is. But there is a push in a lot of jurisdictions to move it to 21 based on what we know about brain development of young people. Um, And I I don't think that's a bad thing. idea at all. And when people talk about, oh, well, our juvenile courts would be overburdened, I said, no, they're already in adult court not getting any of the services that they would need, right, to um, press forward and be rehabilitated. Let's just divert that money from the adult system into the juvenile system that can provide the education, the counseling, the treatment, all the things that most of these children haven't and I'll say that again, children, haven't already received and certainly aren't going to get it in prison. You're not sounding like a lot of prosecutors, (laughs) Miss Sherry Boston. (laughs) And I am, for one, grateful for that. Before we go, is there anything else you want to share about um, what your vision is and your service as DA or leadership in terms of, of making change? You know, change isn't easy. Um, it's hard. And and I'll say this job is not easy. It's hard. Um, every day I'm trying to balance that public safety mechanism, holding offenders accountable for sometimes really bad acts, but then wondering to myself um, how I can give that person a second chance. 
Um, I kind of want to end with like a, I don't know how much time we have, but just a quick sort of story. As much as I want, it's my podcast. Keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) And it came to mind because we're talking about youthful offenders and what happens and youthful offenders that that commit really serious crimes. So um, this year I had the opportunity, as so many people have taken, to go to Alabama and, and visit the Legacy Museum and um, visit uh, the memorial, the lynching memorial. But I had the opportunity to do that with with prosecutors from across the country. And we also walked across um, the Edmund Pettus, uh, Pettus Bridge. Um, and one of the highlights of that trip was we did not do that alone. On my bus ride from Birmingham to Selma, um, we had just had lunch and were invited to do this weekend with um, formerly incarcerated juveniles. And these were all um, adults that were previously sentenced to juvenile, to life without the possibility of parole. Um, And ICANN, which is an organization that works to, is working to change and remove that as a penalty for juvenile across this country, um, helps to support legally get folks out of jail, but also support them on the outside. And then many of them become advocates. Um, I sat on a bus uh, with my friend, Lewis, who I just met that day, who at um, 16, because he was doing drugs and hanging out with the wrong people, ended up murdering a fellow youth who was also involved in the drug trade. Um, And as a result, um, was convicted and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole at 17 years old. Um, He was one of the folks that um, was able to be assisted and his sentence um, ultimately was reduced. And he served about 30 years, 25, 30 years. And so um, I got to sit next to him and it was his first ride on a charter bus. Um, And that whole time he, he told me his story Um, He had just been out, I mean, about uh, eight months. Uh, He had met a wonderful woman and gotten married, and his wife was expecting their first child, which I just found out this morning. They just had their baby. And he's now working as a reentry specialist in the Department of kind of supervision in the state that he's living in. Um, And his whole role is to help people that are transitioning from prison back into society. Um, But he shared with me his story and he said, you know, Sherry, um, for me, you know, I know people talk about life without parole. I wasn't thinking about that. He said, um, the moment that changed it for me on the inside was when my friend's mother wrote me a letter saying she had forgiven me for taking her son's life. Um, and so I say that to say is that uh, Lewis is a real life human person with a real story that started with him committing the worst of the worst crimes, which is murder. And he did it and he acknowledged it and he was in a bad place. And he was a young guy and he goes, he said, Cher, you couldn't have tell, told me anything at 17. But now he's a testament to what happens when we realize that people grow up they mature. They understand as an adult that they've made a mistake. They have a desire to change and be better. 
even if they never think they're going to see society again. Because Lewis never thought he was going to see society again, yet he still made all of these changes. And now he's out and living a really productive life helping others. And if we don't start to see our young people as those possibilities with those endings, if we're giving up and throwing away the key, then we're never going to be better. I want to be better. I want us all to be better, too. But I am better because I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get verklempt a little bit because we go back a long way. And sometimes we would agree. Sometimes we disagree. And there's we're both very strong women <laughs> with very strong opinions. Um, I am so proud of you. Thank you. And we had a sh- friend who um, now I'm going to get verklempt. But um there was another lawyer who was part of our tribe who was part of the journey, and she passed away from cancer way too young. And she loved the law, and she has to be smiling and hearing you say this right now, Sherry, because, you know, you were a defense attorney, and then right at the beginning you were a hardcore prosecutor <laughs> for a while, and sometimes you and I would really get mad at each other. Um but she always wanted us to, um, oh, God. Now, if you saw us right now, we're both crying now a little bit in our eyes. Anyway, i got to take the glasses off. She would want us to be in the space together and talking about different routes to the same thing from my side and your side. And as I do on every podcast, I choose a tea. And I was telling you about it before, but I didn't tell you the reason why fully. Um, so we're having an apple tea, and apples, the spiritual meaning of this particular tea is acquiring knowledge. And I think our journey of being baby lawyers who are very zealous and are each in our own ways, but with life and experience and our friend losing her and seeing and realizing um, that each step of the journey is a bit more knowledge to actually be more compassionate, um, be a zealous advocate, but realize we're talking about human beings at every stage of this, victim and defendant. Um, and on that note, I'm just really proud of you. And uh, But we'll still fight each other at times <laughs> in court. Because <laughs> watch it, next week I'm going to get a call, probably get a case and in there, and you're going to be like, BJ, what is that argument about? But... Um, I'm just so proud of you, and, and thank you for sharing this, and, and we do have to spread this. We do have to have diversity. We have to have women. We have to have all different religions, all different colors, all different everything about us as part of it so that we do understand the humanity and make a world where eventually we are a world with no prisons. That should be our goal. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, BJ. And you're going to be my only guest so far. I've said I love you. (laughs) I love you, too. Thanks. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.